Blog Talk Radio. Good morning or good afternoon or evening, depending on when you listen to this. If you listen to it as a uh, uh, listener later on as a podcast, welcome to the program. My name is Douglas V. Gibbs, and I am here to lead you through the Constitution. This is Constitution Study Radio. We are we are back. Been off the air for a while, but uh, we have returned uh, to go through the Constitution bit by bit. I am a radio host on KMET AM 1490 in Southern California with two radio programs, Conservative Voice Radio, uh, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Saturday mornings, and Constitution Radio with Douglas C. Gibbs on KMET at 1 p.m. in the afternoon on Saturdays. If you want to learn more about those shows, you can go to KMET1490AM.com. That all said, let's work our way uh, through the Constitution bit by bit, piece by piece. That's what I'm here to do. And today's episode, we're, it's just an introduction. And, uh, you know, I haven't done this uh, for a while, and my, my chat's not operating the way I would like it to, so I don't know. I don't know how to, how to get this thing to work properly. Uh, things have changed. Oh, there we go. Uh, I don't know how to make things work properly around here. I'm, I'm back after months of being gone. Um, but um, I will say this. Uh, I used to not allow callers into the program, and I've decided uh, that if there's questions that are specifically uh, uh, specifically uh, directed at the topic at hand, no problem. But, uh, of course, if you are a troll, you want to say something that's in an attack manner or something like that, well, I'll let you go quite quickly. Okay, now, that all said, start working away through the Constitution. Constitution Convention happened uh, from May to September in 1787 during 1787 during that convention that the the delegates there well let's say it this way the constitution is a miracle because if you read john taylor's a new view of the constitution of the united states which was published in 1823 he explains right there in the beginning of the book that the majority of the folks that went into constitutional uh, convention were nationalists. They wanted a bigger government. And this was a dangerous thing, actually. This goes back to the Annapolis Convention of of August of 1786, where they had realized that the Articles Confederation was too weak and they needed a bigger government. The nationalists, of course, were rubbing their hands together. Great, because they wanted bigger government. They believed that a ruling elite should be the ones in control of a of the government, and then there were those who believed in what's called laissez-faire, which uh, people like Thomas Jefferson, which is limited government. So these gentlemen get together from twelve of the thirteen states in May of 1787 to fix the Articles of Confederation. A lot of these nationalists went in, well knowing that they were going to make a new constitution and hoping that it would be a big government. And for the first four or five weeks, the debating was so harsh, the fighting was so difficult, that nothing really got done. 
And the elder statesman, Benjamin Franklin, is watching all of this. And and wondering, uh, as he's watching all this, he's wondering what's wrong with these people. Because as he says to them later, during the Revolutionary War, we were united and we were on our knees. But yet now we have this tremendous... A thing ahead of us, and and we're not even willing to consult the Father of Lights, or in other words, God. And so, and I think I'm finally figuring out this, uh, doing this this chat here. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, but um, I see, yeah, it's loading. I'm going to get the chat up after all. All right. Well, anyway, so. He recommends, he said, well, he says, and I'm going to paraphrase this. I don't have it right in front of me. But he, he says that as he gets older, he realizes these truths to be more evident that if the sparrow uh, hits the ground, the father of lights knows of it, yet how is it that he is not involved in the affairs of men and the creation of empires? He is. And he, then he recommended that they pray before each session of the Constitutional Convention. Now, that was, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, I guess an unexpected thing uh, from us, anyway, to, to think about uh, regarding Benjamin Franklin. Because we've been told that Benjamin Franklin was quite the deist. He was quite the atheist. He had no interest in God. He didn't believe in God. He was a scientific mind, so on and so forth. Yet, this elder, the, the elder statesman, the, statesman, the oldest gentleman in this delegation to create this new working government, the man who goes to France often as a diplomat, and he's well known that diplomacy was not his only reason for wanting to go to France, because he was quite a ladies' man. He's recommending they pray before each session. Well, during the time period, they really didn't want the outside world to know what they were doing, not because it was secrecy in the sense that it was some type of conspiracy, but because they feared that the public would not understand, especially since there was going to be rapid changes of minds and heavy debate, and they didn't want the public to think they were completely nuts. And so... And so they just and they couldn't hire a, a, a clergy because normally you know if you offered a prayer or something like that, you would bring in a clergyman to lead the prayer, and and they weren't going to necessarily hire a clergyman because they really didn't have the money and once again they really didn't want the outside you know bringing someone from the outside to to you know report what's going on in there. So they decided to go down the street according to James Madison's notes on the United States Constitution, which you can look up at the Avalon Project. And look up, uh, you know, Madison's notes on the federal uh, convention. And if you read those notes, what you find out is they decided to go down the street to the nearest church and drop to their knees in a prayer. After that, the convention began to flow because they were looking at something from a different point of view, and they were looking at something from the same point of view. That were irregardless of their differences in opinion when it came to politics. This was all some. This was a godly endeavor, and this was something that they needed to be blessed by the protections of divine providence, as it says in the final sentence of the Declaration of Independence. And after all, you know, for the Declaration, for the independence of this nation, and even conducting this convention, because 
trust me, Britain did not recognize the sovereignty of the United States. And as far as Britain was concerned, all of these men were traitors. They were putting on the line their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. Their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. They were putting a lot on the line, not just themselves, but their family members and their businesses and their friends and those around them and so on and so forth. And so I like to tell people uh, during the War of 1812 when the White House was burning down and they led Madison out of there as quick as they could. And, and people, uh, I, I have a nephew who says, well, Madison was a coward. He says, no, they're rushing him out of there because if he had been caught, he would have been hung as a traitor, a traitor to the British Empire. This was uh, This was an endeavor in which they were putting their lives, their fortunes, their sacred honor on the line. They had to come up with a working government. Now, these were learned men, especially uh, uh, folks like Madison and Benjamin Franklin. And though uh, Adams and Jefferson were not present, they were both in France, uh, their presence was definitely there in spirit. And they were all learned men, and they had researched uh, history quite a bit. And, And also, not only were they learned men because of their research, but also they were learned men because they were English colonists. The English colonists... Um, and and who would become later the English, the American citizens, uh, which Alexis de Tocqueville uh, observed in the 1830s, all knew politics. They were well versed on what freedom is, because they were education was handed down from generation to generation. Even if you couldn't read, the gen, the, the education of politics, religion, and politics was so important that they made sure that their children fully understood because. Liberty is something that sometimes needs to be fought for. And that history, that teaching came from the Saxon system that had existed in Great Britain. The Saxons, and I believe it was 1066, around that time period, had uh, invaded England and brought their system. They were the barbarians of the north. The Roman Empire never could conquer those barbarians. The, The Roman Empire was an authoritarian system by that time. And the Saxons were not. Saxons were based on a system that believed that no one's above the law, including the king, and that your rights are given to you by God, not by government. That you have, and so the Saxon system in uh, Great Britain had developed, and these people knew their history as Englishmen. Remember, the American colonists, the English colonists, were Englishmen, and they knew. Quite well, English history, plight of free men, the Magna Carta, the uh, Glorious Revolution of 1688, and the Declaration of Rights of 1689, which was uh, one of the foundational um, pillars of what would later become the Bill of Rights. And so these men knew what it was to be a freeman in, in, in the English uh, system. Now, when they had first called for independency, they didn't want independency. They just wanted to be treated as freemen, as Englishmen. But when they realized that the the empire was not going to do this for them, then they began to move towards the call for independency. And when the war began, uh, the the first people that were targeted by the British British troops was the Black Brigade. These were the pastors because the faith of the colonists was an important and integral part of their drive for independency, their their understanding of individuality and liberty, and their desire for a better America. 
So now we've got these men gotten together uh, that are well-researched because they understood the Saxon system. Saxon system. They were readers of people like Montesquieu, a French uh, political philosopher, rejected largely by the French but loved by the colonists. Uh, the writings of people like John Locke, and also the writings of someone by the name of Cicero. Cicero was a uh, Roman lawyer and later statesman uh, in, in Rome prior to the birth of Christ. And uh, the, during the hundred years prior to the birth of Christ, uh, Rome was beginning to leave its roots as a republic. Remember, the Roman Empire didn't belong, but be, did not begin as an empire, but began as a republic. And the Roman Republic and the Roman Republic prospered using its own constitution, the Twelve Tables of Law, which which those twelve tablets were on display in the center of Rome for the citizens to see. They had two houses, uh, an assembly and a senate. They had a system that's, well, very similar to what we've got. And they were moving away from that. It was becoming tyrannical. And Cicero had recognized that, and he was and he was preaching honest government and, and demanding that they work to return to honest government. At one point during a senatorial uh, delegation, he um Speaking about honest government, the politicians, because they recognize that limited government would take power out of their hands, turn their backs on him and refuse to listen. Now, Cicero wound up exiled, and some would say he was exiled uh, by his own decision. Uh, and, he, and he began to write about honest government. And his writings, his books, and one particular book, and his publisher says, well, who's going to read your books? You've been exiled. Well, you know who read uh, Cicero's writings? Thomas Jefferson and the other founders. So Cicero was unable to turn the Roman Empire around. But he was an integral part of creating the system that became the American system. So you've got this delegation in the, in the Constitutional Convention. James Madison and two other of uh, the uh, Delegates uh, were taking notes, and, and Madison's notes are the best. And once again, you can access them at the Avalon Project online. Just look up Madison's notes on the Federal Convention. And um, and in the beginning, the, the nationalists are, are, are wanting to turn this into big government, and a miracle happened during the Constitutional Convention. The nationalists were changed, or at least a number of them, to understand that in application, nationalism doesn't work. It becomes tyranny every time. Democracy doesn't work. There's never a democracy that didn't commit suicide. What they needed was a mixed constitution, a mixed constitution that created a, a representative republic, a republic with checks and balances across the board that not, not only limited the powers of three branches of government, a, a, uh, a executive branch, a legislative branch, a judicial branch, but also the states and the people. But it was the states that were given their authorities to to the federal government. So the states' uh, authorities really are unlimited other than the limitations that are placed upon themselves in Article 1, section, section 10, which we will get to later. The beginning of the Constitution, the beginning of the preamble, does not begin we the politicians or we the lawyers or we the ruling elite. It's, and, this is a, and this is a theory that slaps uh, you know, in the face people like Plato who believe that there had to be a ruling elite. Of course, he believed there should be a bunch of philosophers. Aristotle believed, no, that the rule should be by the people. But the problem was, as they saw in the Greek states, that pure democracy 
always destroys itself. So how do you create a democratic system that's not a pure democracy? And so what the founders did is, uh, encouraged by the writings of Montesquieu, who preached that there should be separation of powers. In other words, the three branches should be independent and individual, and, and that their power should not be shared by any of the other branches. Legislative powers belongs to the legislative branch. Executive powers belongs to the executive branch. Judicial powers belongs to the judicial branch. We'll go deeper into that when we get to Article 1, Section 1 of the Constitution. But armed with this knowledge by Montesquieu, they created this system designed to last a long time, designed to stand against tyranny. Now, and it's funny because afterwards, uh, Jefferson had a quote that said that that uh, uh, he believed from time to time that the tree of liberty would need to be watered by the blood of tyrants and patriots. And and in that quote, he also says he expected that even even though the the federal government under the Constitution was was a wonderful thing, that there would be a need for a bloody revolution, a bloody revolution every twenty years, because big government can't be trusted. Big government uh, has a potential to be tyrannical. But here's the problem. Remember, we were talking about the Annapolis Convention earlier in 1786. They understood that the government, as it existed under the Articles of Confederation, was too weak. Shays Rebellion, in which the American revolutionaries, the American Revolution veterans, had been paid with paper money that was fiat money. It was worthless. When they went to pay their bills, they couldn't. It was worthless money, and the creditors didn't stop you know, increasing interest and going after them. And, want, and and a lot of these cases wound up in the courts. And so in Shays' Rebellion, they wound up blocking the steps of the courthouses to stop this relentless attack on their credit. And uh, the government was too weak to put together an army. It was, didn't have the authority to put together an army because the the army was the militias. And the militias were, the, were well, they were the ones protesting. So there was no one to put down this insurrection. What wound up happening is the merchants in Boston put together a mercenary force to take down these veterans. Could you imagine in today's society your opinion of a situation where today's veterans, let's say our Afghanistan, Iraq, Persian Gulf veterans, Vietnam veterans even, were so upset over something that they banded together and they created an insurrection and the military joined them and then the corporations put together a mercenary force to take these people down. How would you feel? That's how they felt. So they needed a larger government capable of creating a force to, for common defense. But yet, at the same time, not one so large that they'd use that standing army against the people. So in other words, here's, here's what was happening. Under the Articles of Confederation, the government was a lamb. But what we needed was a lion. The problems with lions, however, is that lions eat you. So how do you create this lion, yet restrain it in such a way that it does not become a problem for the people? Hence the reason why the Constitution was written the way it was. The Constitution are the chains 
and the shackles around the ankles of that lion to hold it back so that it does not become tyrannical against the people. So we create this lion through the United States Constitution that's limited. How do you do that? Well, you've got to create a system where it, it's only granted a, num- a small number of authorities. Just like, for example, let's say you um, want to add a room to your house. And so you write out a contract with the contractor, and the authorities say, hey, you know, this is a, we, we want to add a room in the house. This is your duties in order to build that room. Here's the dimensions. Here's what kind of flooring we want, what kind of walls we want, uh, you know, the, 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 the specs regarding, you know, lumber and, you know, grade 8 bolts or whatever, galvanized nails, so on and so forth. These are your duties. This is what you're authorized to do to build this room. And then so you go to lunch, you come back, and, and the work crew that's there that it was beginning work on your room, they're mowing your lawn, they're sweeping your walk, and they're cleaning your gutter. You say, hey, wait a second. Contract doesn't give you the authority to do my lawn, sweep my walks, clean my gutter. The authority is granted in this contract is for you to build a room. And the supervisor says, well, you know, we've uh, interpreted the contract to mean that we can do these other things as well. We're going to charge you extra for it, 40000 and there's nothing you can do about it. We've talked to our lawyers about it, and they say it's all on the up and up. And, of course, at that point, you say, well, okay, I, well, if your lawyers say so, I guess that's the way it is. No, of course not. You wrote that contract. You know what it says. You know what the authorities are. You know what that contractor is allowed to do. So you're going to make sure that that contractor abides by the contract. The Constitution is a contract. It's a contract between the states to create a federal government to handle services that the states individually were unable to handle themselves, common defense, international trade. Um, Border security, disputes between the states, a postal system, things that hold together the union or defend the union, protect, preserve, and promote the union. External issues. Internal issues, none of their business. That's why they're not listed in the Constitution. The Constitution is silent on those issues because it's a contract, and only the things that the federal government is authorized to are listed in there as authority. But the federal government says, well, you know, we've looked over the contract, and we've, we've interpreted it to mean that we can do all those internal items, and we're going to charge you extra for it, tax money, and uh, don't worry, we'll give you some of it back through uh, federal funding, but we'll withhold that federal funding if you don't behave. Oh, and there's nothing you can do about it because our lawyers, you know, the federal court system says it's all on the up and up. No. You know what that contract says. You know what it was intended to do. You need to defend it. You need to ensure that the federal government abides by it. Chuck Klein, a writer for Time Magazine in February 6th of 2014, or actually 2012 when he wrote this, uh, it was the final sentence in an article he wrote called Obama's Fairness Doctrine in Time Magazine, and he wrote that the Constitution was created to unite and control the states. Why would the states create a contract and create a system to control them? It was not written to control the states. It was written to serve the states. The states, which is your voice, you are your states, you are the parents. This child has been created and this child is misbehaving, and the states are sitting there, and and we the people are sitting there going, well, there's nothing we do about it, federal supremacy. No. 
that's even misconstrued. When we get to Article 6, we'll talk about it. This Constitution was made to form a more perfect union, a more perfect union. That's in the preamble. Why? Because the union under the uh, Articles of Confederation was too weak. We needed a more perfect union under the Constitution, but with a government that's not so powerful that it takes away the sovereignty of the states or the liberties of the people. So it's limited. But we have fallen asleep on the job. We have put down our oars. So what I mean by that is, and this is what I like to explain it is, our system is this giant yellow raft going down the Niagara River, and we're headed towards the falls. You can hear the Niagara Falls in the distance roaring, and there's this idiot on the front of the boat with big ears that says, you hear that? That's hope and change. No, you know it's not hope and change. That's our destruction. And there's a sign on the Niagara River that says, the point of no return. And we're so close to that sign that we can read the small print. You know, we, you know, you know made in China. Now, the question is, are we going to pick up oars and start rowing in the opposite direction? Or are we going to go past that sign and, and collapse and go over the falls and our destruction? Now, this has happened a number of times in history. We'll all grab our, roar, our, our oars. We'll start rowing in the opposite direction. We'll move the boat away from the falls. And then we'll get far enough away from the falls that we can't hear the falls anymore. We're excited. Hooray! We succeeded. And we put down our oars. And guess what? There's a current there that will start moving that boat right back towards the falls. That is leftism. That is statism. That is, that is the force that are the people who are against the United States Constitution and limited government. And it never stops. The flow, the current will never stop. It is relentless. So eternal vigilance is necessary. We must fight continuously through each moment it is up to us to grab our oars and start rolling in the opposite direction now how do we do this do we run up to our politicians poke them in the chest and slap them around how well are they going to respond when you do that should we work through Congress? Should we should we do it through voting? Should we do it through grassroots movements? And the answer is yes, to all the above. But it must begin locally, because here's our problem. We complain about all these cockroaches in Washington, but we breed them locally. How many of your city council members drive you nuts? How many of your city council members do you want to slap around because well, they are a member of the ruling elite? They're a good old boy network. They are they believe that they are somehow above you because they a position of power. And if we start turning around our cities and our school boards, we get enough cities turned around, maybe we can turn around a state. And if we get enough states turned around, maybe we can turn around the federal government. My group, the Constitution Association, you can learn more at constitutionassociation.com, went to the Temecula school board meeting one time, not, not long ago, uh, last year I believe it was, to protest against the treatment of a child who had been asked to talk about traditions of the winter holiday. I call it Christmas. And when she started talking about the, the Christianity part of the tradition and began to read John 3.16, she was silenced. So we gathered a group of seven of us to go to the to the school board meeting. And in that school board meeting, we discovered something very 
frightening. We outnumbered the parents. Where are the parents? Where are the parents at school board meetings? Where are the citizens at the city council meetings? How many of you know what a central committee is for your party? Do you go to central committee meetings? How involved are you locally? How are we going to turn this around nationally if we can't even get involved locally? Do you know what's on the docket or the agenda for the next city council meeting? Do you know what your city council is doing regarding sustainable development, taxes? Are they taking property from people? Are they properly spending your tax dollars? Or are they throwing money into the general fund for it to be spent any way they can? They sign budgeting. What's going on? How much are they paying for supplies? What does our budget really look like? As we go through the Constitution, we're going to discuss all of these things. Next week, we're going to have an introduction to the preamble. And then we're going to start working our way through the Constitution bit by bit, piece by piece. By the time you get through this with me, you're going to know the Constitution better than anybody you know, other than me. We've got to be armed because with education comes freedom. Madison said so. Well-educated people alone are capable of freedom. And Benjamin Franklin and virtuous people are capable of freedom. We need to be virtuous and educated. See you next week. For those of you listening to the podcast, politicalpistachio.com, douglasvgibbs.com. I also am the author of three books, The Basic Constitution, 25 Myths of the United States Constitution, and Silenced Screams, Abortion in a Virtuous Society. Check them out. Go to politicalpistachio.com or douglasvgibbs.com to learn more. And visit the website. We write daily on politicalpistachio.com. Check out my AM radio shows on Saturdays. And if you want to be a part of the mailing list, send me an email with uh, with uh, either email list or newsletter in the subject line and send it to me at constitutionspeaker at yahoo.com. Constitutionspeaker at yahoo.com. We'll see you next week right here on Constitution Study Radio, blogtalkradio.com slash politicalpistachio. Have a great week. Bye-bye now.